the FBI investigation of missing Easy E recordings after his death that are worth millions that were never recovered. Uh, could you tell us about that? This is a really strange story that only came to light after the FBI files were opened up a long time after Easy's death. But apparently, in all of this confusion and chaos at the time of Easy's death, when all these different parties were trying to take control, like I mentioned, there was there was Tamika, there was Mike Klein, there was Jerry Heller's faction. Apparently, yeah. someone installed themselves at the Ruthless headquarters and changed the the telephone answering machine to have this this number that went to Canada. So apparently, someone like set up this weird satellite office in Canada, and they were trying to have Ruthless Records business go through there. And this person. Whoever it was, and we don't know who it was, they got these this briefcase, which was contained unreleased EVE music, and they they had this briefcase and they were kind of holding it hostage, or they were you know promised money for it or something. The details aren't clear, but eventually, um, you know, the FBI tracked down this person and they were kind of forced to to give up, I think. But the music still has not seen the light of day. to Graffiti Talk Radio. My name is Derek Talley, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Bumble Clot. Bumble, are you in the building? Original Gangsters, the book. Get it. That's right. And I'm joined by my man, Fresh. What's up, Fresh? Chilling, man. Ready to be schooled. Ladies and gentlemen, today we are interviewing Ben Westhoff, the author of the book, Original Gangster, the untold story of Dr. Dre, Easy e Ice Cube, Tupac Shapur, and the birth of West Coast rap. Hello, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, we're do- we're doing great, man. We're just excited about your book. I mean, I found out so much that I didn't know. I thought I knew everything, but this book took me back to school. And so we wanted to ask you a couple of questions today. First of all, how did you come to write the book? Well, when I was in high school in the early 90s, uh, this music, like Dr. Dre's The Chronic and Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, were the biggest uh, albums in my school, and everybody loved it, and I was into it, and, you know, I still like that music today, and when I became the LA Weekly music editor about five years ago, I got the chance to interview a lot of my childhood heroes, people like Dre and Snoop and Ice-T and Ice Cube, and... Once I got those interviews going, I thought I really, you know, could put this book together. Well, it is an excellent book. One of the things that I found out is that Ice Cube and Dr. Dre both made anti-gang, anti-violent songs before N.W.A. was even formed. Why don't you tell us about that? 
Yeah, it's kind of ironic when you think about it, considering in NWA they would, you know, call themselves a gang, essentially. But, yeah, Ice Cube was with a, his one of his first groups called Stereo Crew, and he, you know, one of the very first lines that he recorded was, was all about, like, dissing gang life and gang culture and talking about how it led to the prison or, or the, the mortuary. And Dr. Dre, with his first group called World Class Wrecking Crew, co-wrote a song called Gang Bang, You're Dead. And it made fun of the, you know, the, the headbands, the, the bandanas, the 40 ounces, everything associated with gang culture, too. So, you know, a lot of people know that Dr. Dre had that famous line with NWA, how he, um, you know, doesn't smoke Buddha, doesn't smoke marijuana because it's known to give a brother brain damage. And then he came out yeah, with yeah. chronic. But, but not, <laughs> yeah. not as many people know that he also uh, did gangs, too. Wow, wow. He just went backwards all the way. That, that's funny. But he, I guess he learned his lesson and he took it forward, though. So it's good that, you know, we're all learning. We're all growing. And gangster rap was considered the language of the street. And Schooly D made the first gangster rap songs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he was uh, out of Philadelphia, and his song, um, PSK, What Does It Mean, was really inspirational to Ice-T, who had the first West Coast King yep. song with Six in the Morning. And then, um, and then Six in the Morning was directly inspirational to Eazy-E when he came up with Boys in the Hood. And so those are kind of the the first three, like, real gangster rap songs to take off. Rap had a hard time. Before even gangster rap, rap had a hard time even getting played on the radio. And uh, K-Day in Los Angeles with Greg Mack was the first in the country to play rap 24-7. And I used to live in Lompoc, California at the time in the late 80s. And um, we could get that radio station at night. Sometimes we couldn't get it during oh, the day, wow. but at night, yeah, at night you could get the you could get that K Day with DJ Greg Mack, and then all the college stations and back in the late '80s. All the college stations were was what you had to listen to to find some new rap. So I just yeah, thought that absolutely. was interesting. Yeah, and uh, DOC was himself a radio personality from Dallas before he got with NWA. Um, did you get a chance to speak with him? Yeah, well, not exactly. He was discovered by a radio personality who was in a uh, world-class wrecking crew with Dr. Dre. But, yeah, I did get to speak and hang out with DOC in my reporting for the book. And, uh, yeah, he, you know, what's interesting about DOC is not only was he an amazing rapper, you know, maybe one of the best rappers in, in history, uh, especially from the West Coast, but he also ghost-wrote a ton of classic albums, you know, N.W.A. stuff. Yeah. He did a lot of ghostwriting on uh, Easy E solo albums. You know, Snoop Dogg. He helped. He helped him a lot. Um, but the thing was, even though he became known for for writing gangster rap lyrics, he knew nothing about gang culture at all. Growing up in Dallas, Texas, and he uh, when he got to L.A., Dr. Dre told him he had to come out. You know, Dr. Dre met him through another member of World Class Wrecking Crew and, and was like, you got to come out here, we'll get rich together. And and that's basically how it happened. Wow. When Ice Cube left NWA, he originally wanted Sam Seaver to produce his album. Why didn't that go down? 
Um, I think it was just a matter of they didn't link up for whatever reason. Um, Ice Cube made a trip out to New York, and he ended up linking up with Chuck D in the Bomb Squad, and that ended up being a really, you know, his his first choice was Dr. Dre, but after he left NWA, that wasn't going to happen. So the the Bomb Squad um, were able to kind of combine the funk, the West Coast funk that he loved, with the, the, the kind of frenetic, chopped up samples that sound that Public Enemy had become known for, and it was uh, it was a great a great mix for Ice Cube's uh, debut solo album, America's Most Wanted. Right, yeah, I'm glad that it went down like it did because that was a good album. All those albums were good. Now another thing that we learned, and this is kind of funny the way I put it, but Chocolate wrote a song for Vanilla and Suge had to collect. <laughs> but, but now, Boss Hog CPO in our interview with him said that they didn't even believe Chocolate until they saw the big house with the Mercedes. And Havoc said that they were teasing him about the song until they saw how much it paid him. Yeah, that, that was a crazy story. Um, this, this rapper named Chocolate uh, linked up with with Suge Knight. This was before Death Row Records, and Suge Knight was kind of just breaking into the music industry as a bodyguard for DOC, actually. But around that time, Chocolate enlisted Suge's services, and that was when Vanilla Ice was breaking out, and the song Ice Ice Baby was on the radio every 15 seconds. And he said, you know, um, I actually wrote, co-wrote a lot of songs on that album. And Suge sort of uh, looked into it and kind of shook down Vanilla Ice and you know, the famous story is that he hung him over the balcony and scared him. But it turns out that's not really true. Um, so he just sort of brought Vanilla out to the bal- out, out, onto a balcony at his hotel room and kind of put the fear of God into him. And Vanilla agreed to uh, kind of sign over some of the royalties. And, and that basically made uh, Chocolate a very rich man. Now... The FBI, they sent a letter to Priority Records about anti-police music, but it didn't seem to scare them off. Um, Could you tell us about that? Yeah, this was presumably in response to F the police. I don't know if we can swear here or what. Oh, yeah, it's fine. Okay, yeah, that, that was in response to fuck the police. And the FBI letter was a little strange. It didn't say that you know, NWA was going to get arrested. It didn't say they were breaking the law. It just kind of said that the FBI didn't really appreciate that they were making this anti-police music. And, you know, that's really against the First Amendment for for the government to get involved with uh, a work of art like that. And so there were congressmen yeah, yeah. who were arguing on NWA's side. A lot of people thought this was really bogus. And it, it was a smart marketing decision that instead of sort of backing down or getting afraid, that NWA really embraced it, and it uh, was great publicity for them. As gangster rap started to pick up and more record labels were looking at signing gangster rap artists, what do you think scared major labels off the most when it comes to gangster rap? Was it Ice-T's Cop Killer, which isn't even a rap song. I know it's a heavy metal song, but it actually you know, got made the news and, and made, you know, the, you know, everyone scared or, you know, aware of what's going on in the hip hop community. Was it Ice-T's Cop Killer or was it that NWA FBI letter? 
I think that uh, Ice-T's Cop Killer had a really strong effect on the industry. And when it came to Time Warner, which was the parent company that put out Cop Killer, they received boycotts around the country. Time Warner had owned so many different interests, like theme parks. People were, like, boycotting their, their amusement parks. And it, it came down to... Uh, the, the one of the heads of the company came to Ice-T and he said, you know, this this is really screwing up our company. And at the same time, there were bomb threats. Ice-T said his daughter was being, like, pulled out of school and questioned by, like, government agents and, and all this stuff. And Damn. so, Damn. yeah, it, 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 was, it was, they really turned the screws. And so eventually Ice-T agreed to, to pull the song, whereas... Um, you know, it never really came to that with with NWA. Wow. Now, I, I counted about four times where the FBI gets involved with Ruthless Records here. The second time is when the FBI investigated Mike Klein from the JDL for shaking down rappers. Did they not have enough evidence to convict? No, I don't think they did at all. I think what was ironic was that the JDL, the Jewish Defamation League, was really partnering with, with EV in a lot of ways. This was after Suge Knight was trying to intimidate Ruthless Records because they wanted Dr. Dre in his contract. So, so Dr. Dre was under contract, under contract with Ruthless, and their manager, Jerry Heller, was, was not trying to you know, let him go, and neither was EVE, but Suge Knight uh, according to Easy's testimony, Suge Knight, in, um, through Dr. Dre, had Easy come over to the studio to sell our records one night, and as it's seen shown in the movie Straight Outta Compton, intimidated him into signing over Dr. Dre's contract with with baseball bats and and all kinds of things like that. The movie isn't isn't totally accurate about this. It made it look like the that Suge guys beat up Easy, but that didn't happen in real life. Um, but anyway, so so once this happened, Jerry Heller and Ruthless wanted to sort of increase their security, and so they hired this Israeli kind of operator whose name was Mike Klein, and he enlisted the he and Jerry Heller enlisted the services of the Jewish Defamation League, which was known for kind of um, in the the post, you know the post Nazi era trying to really protect Jewish people by any means necessary, if you will. And so they had a strong partnership with, with Easy and Ruthless Records. So this idea that they were trying to shake him down, you know, it didn't really, I think, make a lot of sense, and, and it ended up uh, not not going anywhere. Right, right, because I was thinking that would be some type of racket to where, where rappers would get anonymous calls threatening them, and then all of a sudden they'd also get a call uh, offering to protect them just in time, kind of like when I when I when I read it in your book, I kind of I kind of got the um, sense of a brand new glass company opening up in the neighborhood, and then the next day everybody's windshield gets busted out, and then the next day after that yeah. everybody gets a a flyer on their on their under their windshield about say hey we fix glass you know yeah that's kind of how i was thinking what was happening here these rappers will get threatened and then 
all of a sudden, just in time, they would get an offer of protection and then say, hey, let's use these guys, you know, and they'd get shut down. <laughs> yeah, but um, stuff like that happened. Yeah. Well, and the the third time that the FBI is mentioned in your book is concerning ruthless records, white supremacists had Easy E on a hit list, and the FBI didn't even tell them about it. How did he find out? Yeah, that was, that was terrible. That he didn't find out until well after the fact, and the the FBI, what their excuse was was that well, you know, these were just threats. We didn't find any any credible evidence, but Ruthless Records and Easy e thought this was more payback for fuck the police and stuff like that, so they were pretty upset about it. Did they, uh, did they yeah. uh, hire a private investigator to, like, uh, figure out what was going on? Because I read in the article... Um, I, think it was, that... I think it was something like the, the L.A. Times broke the story or something like that, and that's how they found okay. out. Well, I learned also that Tamika Wright... And Mike Klein drove a wedge between Easy E and Jerry Heller. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, it's 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 not entirely true. It's not exactly sure how you know. There's a lot of different um, different stories and rumors flying around. Mike Klein and, and Tamika were on different sides of it too. Actually, um, Mike Klein claimed that he should he was entitled to half of Ruthless Records when Easy died. And Tamika claimed that she should own all of it. Um, you know, Eze married Tamika, who was his girlfriend, on his deathbed, and changed his will immediately. And so Mike Klein claimed that he wasn't actually in his right mind. You know, he was too sick to really know what he was yeah, doing. Yeah. He signed these papers, and that uh, it was not legitimate. And so, you know, Jerry Heller, meanwhile had been fired not long ago by Easy, And, you know, this was strange because they had been together for so long and they were really, really tight. I mean, you know, when, when Ice Cube left NWA and complained about Jerry Heller, Easy e sided with Jerry Heller. When Dr. Dre left NWA and complained about Jerry Heller, Easy e sided with Jerry Heller. So they, they had a strong bond. And Jerry Heller claimed that uh, said the same thing, that Easy wasn't in his right mind, that he was sick, that, you know, other people were influencing him. And in the end, yeah, yeah. The, the court sided with Tamika, and they said that, you know, the paperwork was legitimate and she was the rightful owner of Ruthless Records and his estate. But there's still a lot of bitterness about all that to this day. Yeah, that's the yeah. same thing that was brought up when we spoke with Gary Ballin. Easy and Tamika yeah. got married in March 14th in 1995. And I was going to ask, was Easy even coherent enough to sign the marriage certificate? But you kind of answered my, my question on that one. I'm I'm thinking that that he wasn't. And, yeah, um, I mean, he was, uh, you know, he was, he was, you know, he was alert. He was still in his hospital bed. It wasn't like he was passed out or, or something like that. But, but yeah, it, it does raise a lot of questions. I mean, the man was dead shortly thereafter. Um, even if he was, you know, legally of a sound mind, it still raised a lot of questions in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. yeah. Now, 
your book brought up a suspicion. There's a suspicion brought up by your book without making any allegations. So there was no allegations made in the book. But it, it, I noticed your book, you know, when you wrote the book, you noticed the same suspicion that I had this suspicion of. The book mentions that easy symptoms started to get better after Tamika left because him and Tamika uh, broke it off for a while. And Tamika had left after Easy got sick and he started to get better. And then, you know, once Tamika returned, he started to get sick again. And in our interview with Gary Ballin, he had those same suspicions. Well, the, um, the, the craziest thing was that the, the nation of Islam was guarding Easy by his deathbed and they tried to use this alternative form of medicine that was coming out of Kenya. It was supposed to be this miracle wonder drug that cured AIDS called Chemron. And so we know, of course, that there's no cure for AIDS, but at the time, this was considered something that could help help him better, help perk him up, kind of resuscitate him. And this drug was brought into his bedside and administered by the Nation of Islam. And there were some signs that it was helping him feel better. It was perking him up a little bit. But uh, Tamika did not want him to take this. And so when they took it away, he, he died shortly thereafter. Now, you know, as I said, it, there's, you know, there's no cure for AIDS. This is not a proven thing. But, again, it raised suspicion in some people's minds, and it, gave, it took away people's hope when, when he stopped receiving this medicine. Yeah, and I was reading the book. It was some type of uh, inhibitor. Uh, I forget the word that was used, but it was some type of inhibitor that that actually um, made patients get better. It didn't cure it, but it made the patients get better for a short short time. Could have added some life to them, you know, while he was living. But you know, yeah, it's, it's hard, we'll it's never hard to know. say. You know, it's hard to say yeah. exactly. But you're right. We will never know. Right. And then the the fourth encounter with the FBI concerning Rufus in the book, the FBI investigation of missing Easy E recordings after his death that are worth millions that were never recovered. Uh, Could you tell us about that? This is a really strange story that only came to light after the FBI files were opened up a long time after Easy's death. But apparently, in all of this confusion and chaos, at the time of Easy's death, when all these different parties were trying to take control, like I mentioned, there was there was Tamika, there was Mike Klein, there was Jerry Heller's faction. Apparently, yeah. someone installed themselves at the ruthless headquarters and changed the the telephone answering machine to have this this number that went to Canada. So apparently, someone like set up this weird satellite office in Canada. And they were trying to have Ruthless Records business go through there. And this person, whoever it was, and we don't know who it was, they got this briefcase, which was contained unreleased EVE music. And they they had this briefcase, and they were kind of holding it hostage, or they were, you know, promised money for it or something. The details aren't clear. But eventually... Um, you know, the FBI tracked down this person and they were kind of forced to, to give up, I think. But the music still has not seen the light of day. So I I don't know where it is. And I, you know, there might be someone out there who knows where it is, but uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen with it, if anything. They wow. actually caught the guy. They actually caught the, Cana- the guy that was running the Canadian office. 
It, it looks like they did, yeah. The FBI report wow. is hard to make out because there's so many things that are redacted with, like, a, a black marker, so you can't see yeah. all the details. But that's, as far as I understand, that's, that's how it is. Wow. Well, they need to Please. torture that guy or something until he gives up where, the, where that music is. <laughs> Who knows, man? I mean, I, I feel like Tamika, Tamika is the one who might know more about this. She might know about more EV music, um, but then again, you know, she might not. She probably would have put it out if, if it existed, so I'm not really sure. Wow. Right, right. Another thing I learned from your books is that Tupac was Easy rapper before he went to prison. Yeah, Tupac and Easy were really tight, and he would go to events with Easy, and even I heard like people in Easy's camp would wear thug life caps and stuff like that. And there's some people who believe that if Easy were still alive when Tupac got out of prison that he might have signed with Ruthless Records instead of Death Row. So if you remember, Easy e died in 1995, and then Tupac got out later in 95. So, you know, he was looking for somebody to, to pay his bail to help him to help him get out, and, and he and Easy had a, a really close partnership, so that you never know what could have happened. Now, another thing I learned from your book is that Biggie originally wanted to leave Puffy and get managed by Tupac, but Tupac advised Biggie to stay with Puffy because Puffy's going to make him a star. Yeah, that was really interesting, too. It was, at the time, Tupac was already a big star. He already had, you know, like, platinum albums, and he was a movie star, too, and Biggie wasn't really known outside of Brooklyn or New York very much, and he wanted to uh, have have everything that Tupac had, and he asked him to manage him. But, you know, I don't know. You know, Tupac really believed in Biggie, and he taught him a lot. He he taught him about the type of songs he should make. He said he should rap for for, for the women instead of the guys. And he helped him out in other ways. But when it came to actually being his manager, he said, no, I'll stick with Puffy. He'll help you. And, and, you know, of course, Puffy ended up doing that. So, Wow. Now, once that... East Coast, West Coast, beef started. One irony that I got from reading your book is that Rage and Snoop refused to get into the East Coast, West Coast war while Ice Cube threw himself into it while he actually could have been the one to extinguish the whole fire. That was was definitely strange, yeah. Uh, as far as Snoop and, and other people on death row, too, they they just they weren't feeling it. Uh, in the end, it was, it was Tupac's war, and it was and it was Shug's War. Shug kind of joined with Tupac, but when when then then you know some random people started getting into it, and Ice Cube just kind of was a shitster. You know, he's he's done that a little bit in his career. He 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 says things that he knows will be controversial because controversy sells. And with his group Westside Connection, they said yep. some inflammatory things against against New York, which which people some people found was odd because Ice Cube before had such a great relationship with the East Coast, like on America's Most Wanted and stuff like that. Right, right. So the West Coast connection could have been the one when he came out with that was was to say, you know, hey, stop this madness. You know, we don't need to be doing this. But, you know, it waits to after, you know, bloodshed, and then you see the, the ramifications of your words before you say, okay, now we need to stop this. 
you know. To his credit, he was part of the, the Farrakhan Peace Treaty, which I talk about in the epilogue of my book, after Biggie and Puck's murders. And he was instrumental in coming together and healing, you know, after that. Right. And uh, Fat Joe, he drove 1,500 miles. I learned from reading your book, 1,500 miles. And he told Ice Cube that I just wanted to look into the whites of your eyes and ask you why. Why did you yeah. do this? I love that quote. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Upon Tupac's death, you know, we have Tupac that was murdered in Las Vegas, and we have Biggie that was murdered in Los Angeles. It was Biggie's murder investigation with Detective Russell Poole, and Detective Russell Poole's conspiracy that led to the investigation of Biggie's murder, which eventually led back to the investigation of Tupac's murder. Uh, you want to tell us about that? Well, there. You know, from the start, it, people can't believe that these murders haven't been solved. You know, more than 20 years later, they were committed, and these hundreds of people around, and it, it seems crazy. Uh, there was initially, with Tupac's murder, which happened first, there were these theories that the, the Crips did it. Um, there was, and then with Biggie's murder, there was all this, these theories that it was a widespread uh, cop conspiracy, and Russell Poole was a detective, an LAPD detective, who believed he was being stonewalled when he uncovered this information about um, different cops who were who were partnering up with Death Row and had all these these ties to the murder. And so eventually, though, those theories didn't really seem to bear out. And the theories that make the most sense to me were from a detective named Greg Kading, who was also on LAPD yeah. a while later. And Greg Kading believed that a crip named Orlando Anderson, what, who, was in, who just happened to be in Las Vegas at the time and had actually been beaten up and stomped by Tupac, Shug, and their entourage at the MGM Grand Casino right after the Mike Tyson fight, he believed that, based on the evidence, that Orlando Anderson came back and murdered Tupac later that night. And then six months later, that Suge paid a man named Wendell Poochie Faust to murder Biggie, and that was in retaliation for Tupac's murder. But well, we never would have found out about Orlando Anderson and, and his um take on it if it wasn't for Detective Poole's conspiracy uh, concerning the cops and him gets constantly getting stonewalled because then Biggie's family sued the LAPD for $400 million? Yeah, for, for like almost a half a billion dollars, uh, what he would have made during his lifetime, approximately. And that's that's the only thing that puts some fire in the LAPD's ass to get up and start doing some investigation. Yeah, yep, exactly. And that's why um, Greg Kading and them kind of gotten breathed new life into the into the investigation. And Kading believes that because he sort of cleared the LAPD more or less in his investigation of who killed Biggie, that that's why the whole the plug got pulled. And the, the LAPD, you know, basically said, well, we're cleared, so we don't need to bother. To, to continue with this investigation. And yeah, they don't care. 
<laughs> yeah, they don't care. So um, I'll tell you what. Um, tell us about your new book deal. I hear you have a new book deal happening. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I just signed it literally on Friday. Uh, it's about synthetic drugs. So if you've heard of, like, um, synthetic marijuana, like K2 and Spice, and also um, fentanyl, yeah, which yeah. is a, a heroin substitute that's killing a lot of people. It's, it's all these these drugs that are intended to mimic the effects of drugs you've heard of, you know, typical drugs like marijuana and heroin and LSD and ecstasy, but they're they're made in labs and they're, you know, killing a lot of people and a lot of people don't know about them yet. Wow, that's that's wow. awful. Yeah. I mean, that's great that we have someone actually writing a book on that. Um, we're definitely going to keep in touch with you on that because we want to learn more about that and um, what's happening in that world because um, we actually don't hear a lot about that. You know, we hear to stay away from drugs, but these this synthetic drugs is really um, – Killing people out there, and what is what is this bath salts that everybody was talking about a while back? Do you know what is that? That's that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, these bath salts they they're basically a hodgepodge of different drugs, and they're made in these Chinese labs. And they're they're things called cathinones, and they um, you know they're not necessarily bad just in themselves, but often the problem is people don't know the right dosage to take. So if you, you know, if you take take a little bit, it could be enough to kill you and it's the the dosages are all is are, are all fucked up. So stay away from bath salts. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And 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 I bet no I bet you there's no two batches that are the same dose. Exactly. Right? Yeah, cuz it's not a controlled substance. This is made in somebody's lab, you know, with different formulas. Oh, that's that's awful. But that's a good thing to know. Now, are you going to be putting this one on audiobook too? I would, I would bet, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but because we're, we're going to buy it either way. You know, we love your work. You know, so um, if you if you want to tell everybody uh, where they could where they could reach you at and where they could find you on the internet. Absolutely. You can, my website is benwestoff.com B-E-N-W-E-S-T-H-O-F-F dot com. And, yeah, but if you just Google Ben Westoff, Original Gangsters, you know, or just Ben Westoff, E-D, Dr. J, what have you, you'll find me. And I love uh, hearing from people. So, yeah, if you check out the book, uh, give me a shout on Twitter or wherever. All right, great. Now, uh, Bomber Clyde, do you have any questions? Yeah, I got a, kind of a question on the the new book. Um, are, do you are you gonna dwell on the uh, how all those synthetic things came from like the I think it was a university professor somewhere in America, and like yeah, his, uh, you're, you're exactly right. Okay, you gonna dwell on that? Okay, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, there was um, there was this professor at Clemson University. His name was John William Huffman, and he was creating yep. something that was like uh, like aspirin. It was like uh, a drug. It was not for recreational purposes. It was for medicinal purposes, and uh, the formula kind of got hijacked by rogue drug makers, and they they created spice out of that, which is a type of, uh, of uh, synthetic marijuana. Ben, we want to thank you for joining us today. We really enjoyed your book. Again, the name of the book: Original Gangsters: The Untold Story of Dr. Dre, Eazy-E, Ice Cube. 
Tupac's Accord, and the birth of West Coast rap. And I want everybody to be look out for Ben West, Westhoff's uh, future upcoming work. So that's benwesthoff.com, B-E-N-W-E-S-T-H-O-F-F.com. Ben, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. It has been, I appreciate your guys' questions. It was great talking to you. All right, awesome. thank you. What's up? All right, take care. Peace. All right, peace.